That is our hymn of the month, and we're going to sing it again this month. I just want to point out to you the wonderful words that it has. It's nearly a hundred-year-old hymn, but it seems very fresh to me every time I sing it. That second verse, O wind of God, Holy Spirit, come bend us, break us. You might be asking God for something there that you don't really bargain for. But then look what else you're asking for. Till humbly we confess our need, and then in your tenderness remake us. That's what God intends to do when he does have to break us. Good New Year's prayer for you there in that hymn. You might want to ponder its words further. We're continuing as this month of January begins in our studies in Matthew's Gospel. Today, finishing a portion of chapter 19, a short portion, I'm going to begin reading at verse 27, and I'll give you a little bit of the flow of this because it is in the mid- more or less in the middle of something as I pick it up in 27. And then we go on through the parable given at the beginning of chapter 20 through verse 16. Listen to God's holy word and prepare. Ask God to speak to you through it as we try to hear it today. Peter answered Jesus, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you, will, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also, please go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around and asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? 
take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. And don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so the last will be first. And the first will be last. And this is God's holy word. Sometime last year, I had a lunch meeting with a friend who's a Ph.D. scholar at a leading seminary, a man who teaches the Bible for a living. He told me about seminary life. I've known quite a bit about it, having been a student myself and knowing other scholars, but he became very candid and revealed some things that were interesting to me. And in, in effect, he said, you know, people think of seminaries as places that are sort of cloistered away from the world, and they probably think we're kind of monks there with pure motives about everything we do and that worldly things never enter in. He said it's so much the opposite that he finds himself often having to check on his personal motives for things that he does as a seminary teacher. If you don't know it, I'll tell you that the academic world is a very competitive place. Not the same kind of competition exactly as corporations out there in the marketplace, but it is a real kind of competition. You have to, first of all, be an intelligent person to get into that world, and then you've got to study for many years, get a master's degree, get a doctorate, master a a very complex area of thinking, in some cases learn several ancient languages well. And then you need to go on all the time. You know, you don't just reach an accomplishment and say, aha, now I'm a Ph.D., I've arrived. No, you have to write articles and write books and put forth ideas and things that show colleagues in the theological and biblical world that you are a competent person and that you deserve advancement. Well, my friend said to me, you know, in doing these things, we're here to, to train people to minister for Jesus Christ. We're here to serve the gospel. And how easy it is many times to wake up and realize that we're serving ourselves, thinking about status, thinking about honors we want to earn and recognition and peer pressures and politics within the institution. In other words, this man was confirming, a a dedicated Christian man was saying, you can operate at a high level of usefulness for the kingdom of Jesus Christ with very worldly motivations tugging at you and twisting you every single day. That should be no surprise, I suppose. Well, last Sunday, we looked at the familiar account just before what I've read of the rich young man, he's called a ruler in one of the other Gospels. And we learned or were reminded again of Jesus teaching the sheer impossibility of anybody who sees riches and materialism as his God entering the kingdom of heaven while adoring that God. And yet he added that the grace of God can work a heart miracle and actually dethrone that materialism and enthrone Christ. 
the miracle was not visible in the case of this man as he walked away. I had an interesting discussion with one of you who, who presented a number of reasons that they thought this man did indeed become a believer, and it may have been, but the point is we don't see it in this text. He walked away sadly because his God exacted a cost from him that he was unwilling to pay. Well, now we're thinking about how the 12 disciples are reacting to this. And it says that they were astonished to hear that a wealthy man, a man of Israel, a man who observed the commandments and revered them, would be someone who would have a problem of any kind. Because there was the very popular opinion that apparently the disciples subscribed to that if you've been blessed materially, that was God's blessing. And that you wouldn't question anything other than the fact that this was God pouring out favor on you. And and so how could Jesus say a person with that much favor poured upon him has a spiritual problem? And so once more, Peter, we see how he loves to do this, acting as the spokesman, raises the kind of question, verbalizes what was in the minds of the disciples. And he's not afraid to do that. And he speaks so honestly from his heart. This little discussion between Jesus and Peter followed by a parable, and I I really believe this latter part of chapter 19 belongs together with the parable of chapter 20. We're going to see here that if we're not careful, we could end up dodging the idolatry of money and things only to find ourselves captive to another idol the idol of pride. I want to ask, what motive is going to sustain us in a lifetime of steadfast trusting in Christ? Is it, is it in any sense a motive of what I'm going to get out of it? Is there a right time to wonder how Christian faith is going to reward us? The Danish Philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard said one time that anyone redeemed by Jesus Christ should be so grateful for his salvation that he will not even give any consideration to other compensations. Kierkegaard wrote this. He said, I am but a poor wretch whom God took charge of and for whom he has done indescribably more than I ever expected. So now I only long for the peace of eternity in order to do nothing in it but thank him. Well, that's a fine statement. And it expresses idealism. It sounds very laudable, and we would agree with it, and we should. After all, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6 that those who would parade around in public looking for some kind of public applause or status to come to them for their acts of piety that they do in public, already have all the reward they're going to get? And didn't he say elsewhere in Luke 17, verse 10, that when we have done everything God tells us to do, we should be ready to say, I am just an unworthy servant who has only done my duty. In other words, I don't expect anything else. I'm just doing what I ought to do. Well, you might be surprised to know how big the subject of rewards for believers is in the Scripture. There's actually quite a bit 
in a way of parables that addresses it. And there's going to be some more that we'll get into before we finish with Matthew. I'm not going to even try to touch that subject in its completeness today, but just the one tangent which intersects with this text we have here. I would say to you the theme at the end of Matthew 19 and going into 20 could be summarized this way. There is a variety of true rewards for Christian disciples. But there's only one salvation that is by grace alone for all disciples. Let's look into that today. First of all, Matthew 19, 27 to 29, where the point is being made that disciples who forsake any material benefit at all for Christ, for Christ, not just for the sake of forsaking, but because following Christ seems to require it. Disciples who forsake material benefits for Christ can expect a great reward. Naturally, it was Peter who spoke up. He couldn't let the incident go as this young man walked away from Jesus. It says, sadly, sadly that he could not obtain that which he had come to seek. And it had Peter's gears turning. And he then speaks to the Lord, and first he said to himself, well, wait a minute. I think the 12 of us here have, have done what that man could not do. We have walked away from fishing nets without a backward glance. Matthew has left his occupation as a tax collector. Others had abandoned various things. And we hardly see our families now for weeks on end. Don't our sacrifices mean that we're set for eternity? What reward can we expect? Was the question that he verbalized. You see, Peter had just heard that human performance wasn't what counted, and maybe there was a a little uncertainty introduced by that, but alongside the uncertainty, there's a hint of entitlement in the question that he asks. After all, he and his comrades had endured a couple years already now of hard living, moving from place to place, never knowing exactly tomorrow where their food's going to come from, where they're going to sleep, what in the world is going on. There's increasing tensions and conflict arising against Jesus, and they feel part of that. And Peter wonders, doesn't the Lord owe us something after all we've been through as his loyal disciples? And I want to say, I'd be amazed if you don't think that once in a while. Because I do. Doesn't the Lord owe us something? Oh, after all, you know, we give up our Sundays. Other people get to do whatever they want on Sunday. Why, we're loyal to the Lord. Why, other people, you know, it it isn't so incumbent on them that they think about how the Scripture might guide their lives. They're not worried about it. But we try to conform to things and, and check ourselves. And don't we get anything for that? Well, Jesus gives an answer that's quite positive to this question. He doesn't rebuke the question. And in fact, he set a dateline on which ultimate rewards would indeed be given to people of faith. Verse 28 says, it will happen at the renewal of all things. Unique Greek word there, palingenesia, literally means a rebirth time. Another translation, the English Standard Version says, in the new world. 
He's referring to history's climax after the return of Christ. Of course, there are many passages we could go into and cite what what we can learn about that, but that's not our main purpose here. He's referring to that time when he himself will come gloriously and visibly into history to judge all people and then to set in motion the final destiny of the heavens and the earth. And what we learn about that time is it's going to be a time of recreation. Believers will have resurrection bodies. Second Peter 3 says it goes on further than that and that the heavens and the earth themselves somehow in a manner it's hard for us to understand how can this happen and, and we be protected through it, but God's certainly capable of doing it, that the earth is going to be purged with fire. And the creation that God once made as a paradise for Adam and Eve is going to be remade and it's in that new heaven and new earth in which we will live as God's home for us to dwell forever in a very conscious fellowship with one another and awareness of his presence forever. Now, on that day, on that day of remaking and renewal, we're told something quite specific here, that these original disciples, Peter, now we know one of them ended up being disqualified from this, but you almost wonder to yourself whether This wasn't the reason why Jesus chose 12 disciples and why the disciples later felt compelled to choose someone to replace Judas after his apostasy because they were promised that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I have to join many commentators, the majority of commentators, who say, how do we know exactly what this means in detail? We don't. And yet it clearly says that these apostles will be held in high authority. They will be held in great honor, even in honor above the heads of the great tribes that established that covenant nation of Israel in the the Old Testament. Why should we be surprised that unique apostles to whom was delegated the original task of establishing and governing and leading and guiding the church on earth will be honored heads of the church when it is consummated, when it is perfected. That shouldn't be surprising at all. In fact, it's, it's a good reason for us to see those apostles as being absolutely unique in their role, in their office, and, and they're never reproduced again in what they do in history as the vessels through whom God actually gave the completion of his word, the New Testament. Now, that was a pretty head-turning prophecy if you're Peter or Matthew or one of the others. But notice that it applies to them. It's not a general prophecy. However, the text goes on in verse 29 with a general promise, more reward, and this time that which includes not just the apostles but all disciples of Christ, and we would assume from every era of history when he says everyone. Everyone, not just you, who has ever left anything valuable, be it a house, a brother, sister, father, mother, children, lands, if you had to leave those things to go and serve me or because of some principle that excluded those things from your life or some persecution drove you from those things, I want you to know I've noticed the sacrifice. I've marked it down. And I plan on a royal degree of compensation. Just think about the one thing he mentions here, a break with a family member. 
very conscious as we think about the suffering church in the world today of what it means to declare yourself a Christian in Muslim or Hindu countries or under other kinds of rule where people are, maybe they don't even have a strong faith, but they're afraid of anyone who declares themselves for faith because the government is against faith. We hear many stories of parents literally disowning children, breaking contact, changing their wills when someone goes to Christ and says, Christ is now my Lord. And there actually are cultures that believe that the right thing a parent, a father of a family should do would be to kill that person, their own child, for turning away from the false religion that they worship in. Well, we don't wrestle with that directly, most of us here. Yet many of you do know what it is to have real pressures on you from family members who are not believers, who quietly, sarcastically mock what you do. They simply don't understand what you do and what you think and what you believe, and you feel that that break of fellowship with the rest of the family, maybe even harsh exclusion of some kind. I need to remind you that Jesus himself was thought to be deranged, out of his mind, by the half-brothers he had, the full biological sons of Mary and Joseph. They Read the early chapters of Mark. They came to get him, to take him away and protect him from himself. They thought he was crazy. He understood what it is to deal with family misunderstanding and rejection. And certainly one of the compensations he puts forth for us is that we ought to be discovering in the church of Christ a new family of faith. And this should not be a little thing at all. In the church, in the body of Christ, there are fellow believers who will teach you, pray for you, be role models for you, hold you accountable, give you encouragement, reach out to you when you have an emergency need. This is not merely theoretical. The body of Christ is a group of people who are in many ways more attuned to you than than many blood relatives are if they don't know Christ. And it's a place where people will cry with your sorrows and laugh delightedly with your joys. I hope you have some experience of that. I hope you're discovering that. You'll never relate to every member of a large body of Christ like this one in the same way you could with an intimate family. Of course, that would be ridiculous. But you ought to be relating to some. And those bonds ought to be real as you see them develop. Jesus says here, for whatever we give up, we'll receive a hundred times in return. I think the basic question is whether this is supposed to be regarded as a formula of crass arithmetic or a statement of the abundance of God. Those who go for the literalistic way of seeing it turn out to be evangelists on TV who might say, well, send your $100 contribution into my ministry, and God is going to put $10,000 into your account somehow, some way, very soon. That's a lie. It's a lie of the, the most evil and stupid kind. God doesn't promise that. I really believe that he's using the number 100 here, which is like the number 1,000, is a number of abundance, a number of generosity. And the Lord is saying, 
if you lose something, don't worry. I'll multiply what I give back so many times that you'll be more occupied with thinking of the good things I've done than the loss that you've incurred. The famous missionary to China of more than a century ago, Hudson Taylor, a man who did give up many things. Uh, if you looked at his life, you would say he might have lived a life of great deprivation. He, he buried himself in China. He adopted Chinese dress and lived with the Chinese people and forsook any kind of meaningful salary, really. And yet Hudson Taylor once wrote to say that he never felt that he had succeeded in making a true sacrifice to God. People said, oh, look what you've sacrificed. He said, no, I've never sacrificed anything to God, I don't think, because every time I give something up in the belief that it has to go for the sake of Jesus, I find myself so much better off without it than I was before. Hudson Taylor didn't walk around saying, woe is me. I have sacrificed so much for the kingdom. He went around saying, praise God for his abundance and his provision and his wonderful blessing and encouragement on my life. Another man of the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, said, no one becomes a real loser in the long run by following Christ. For he, we find, can open up hearts and homes to us that are more warm and hospitable than those that are closed against us. And he gives a peace of conscience, a bright future hope, a sense of secure forgiveness, and many other things, Ryle said, that outweigh any comfort of earth that I might need to cast aside for his sake a hundred times more. Well, the capstone of what God gives as a reward is spoken here in in such a small way that, you know, it, it almost seems like an afterthought. It's hardly an afterthought. When we read at the end of verse 29 that we receive a hundred times as much and inherit eternal life, there's the great reward. There's the, the greatest thing of all. He gives us a life that never ceases. It's eternal. It goes on and on. And it's life of the highest quality and depth that you could imagine. Life in fellowship with our God and Savior. Life as Revelation in the last chapters depicts it, free of sin in our lives, free of shame, free of inadequacy and and fears and tears and pains, all that banished. What more could a person ask for? 1 Corinthians 2.9 has that wonderful passage. It says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It has not even entered man's mind to imagine what God has prepared. You see, that's what Jesus is saying when he says a hundred times more. Take your imagination as far as it will go, and you haven't touched the borderlands of what eternal life will mean. And so we say with that missionary Jim Elliott, what he's repeated so often, his famous quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to receive what he cannot lose. Well, now we move to the parable here. This parable is called The Workers in the Vineyard. And in the second place this morning, I want to focus on it to have you see how it is framed on either side with the last verse of chapter 19, 1930, and the 16th verse of chapter 20. It's it's like a picture frame, the same statement being made before and after the parable. Many who are first will be last, 
And many who are last will be first. Obviously, we're still thinking. The train of thought here is still on that rich man who in this world was somebody. He was one of the firsts, okay, who if he didn't change and see God work would be one of the lasts. And Jesus wants us to learn something from this parable. There's a warning given. It boils down to this, that disciples who are hung up on human pride can expect a great reversal. The warning says, don't attach values of status or compensation and, and your way of thinking about those things from, the, from this material world and translate it into kingdom service for Christ. In fact, there are going to be, in the final revealing of all things, that day of renewal he spoke about, there will be those who today are Christian leaders, maybe in quotes, with great offices and, and great titles and and places of respect who will be revealed to be nearly nothing or, or real imposters. And there'll be people that you may dismiss right now as the least kind of people you could possibly think of, of, of no real consequence, inferior-looking people, people who look like outsiders who will be revealed in that last day as God's choicest saints. They'll be the first. The parable here is, is one I don't have to really go over and tell it to you all over again. In some ways, it's self-explanatory, but in some ways, it also leaves you scratching your head. You know the story here. The owner of a vineyard goes out. It's evidently a time when harvest or pruning or some matter of major work has to be done in his, his vineyard, and all the hands he can obtain are desired. And so he goes into the town marketplace and hires day labor from those that are available there. This is very common still in many parts of the world today. And he goes out at, at the early part of the day, at the days, the work days, about 12 hours long. Try that one out. 12 hours to work. And uh, in the first hour, he goes out and says, come on, I need you, as many of you as I can get. And the wage is going to be one denarius. Now that, throughout the New Testament, that is pretty consistently regarded as a working man's average day wage. And it's a wage that people would say, yes, that's fair for this kind of work. And, and the contract, at least orally, was made. I will pay you this. Is that all right? Yes, we'll go. Off they went. Well, you hear what he did then. Every few hours he went, he found more people. He said, I need more help. Come, I'll do for you what is fair. I'll take care of you. And you notice he didn't say to them, I'll pay this specific amount. And, and they wouldn't have expected him to say the amount that they knew represented a full day's pay. Well, then, of course, after everybody's worked hard and some have only worked one hour and others have worked 12, the twist comes. Because the 11th hour workers get paid first. One denarius. And somebody must have seen their surprised reaction. Those first-hour workers must have said, look at that, you guys. They got a whole day's pay. Wow, we certainly are going to get 10 days' pay, aren't we? And so it went, handing out the pay, one denarius, one denarius, one denarius. And you know, the first guys sent their shop steward and said, unfair. How dare you do this to us? 
And the owner responds, what are you saying? Didn't we have a contract? Did you receive the contract? You worked hard, I grant. Did you receive what I told you you'd get? Well, yes. Have I been unfair? Have I violated the contract? Now, you see, we still say, you know, we grumble beside them a little bit, don't we? Why would he do this? It wasn't very nice. But the point of the parable is, was it not his right? Did he violate anyone's contract or agreement? Not at all. In fact, he was super generous. He was lavish in the way he paid the last workers. And that is his business. If he wants to conduct his agricultural affairs, that he'd be broke pretty soon if he kept doing that. You know, he's not, he's not really getting work for money. And, and I don't assume this man did operate that way every day. And this is, of course, an imaginary tale Jesus is telling. But the point is, is it not his right to be lavish if he wants to be lavish? He is just. He is fair. He just happens to be super generous. God is the author of justice and equity. It's impossible for him to be unjust. And Jesus used this parable to shock us a little bit, to tell us that God pays out in the currency of grace. Not what is owed, grace. Grace and mercy are what count where salvation is concerned. Everyone who approaches the one true God, everyone who approaches him by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son, receives the same gracious redemption and pardon, the same gift of eternal life, no exceptions. God is never unjust. Listen, if you want him to be just, you're going to be sorry. Because if he gives you the just treatment of your sins only, you are doomed according to the Scripture. You should be delighted that grace is so unfair. Grace is always unfair. Luther's comment on this parable was to say this, God will not deal with you according to your works, but only in grace. Where would you be otherwise? He pays only in grace when it comes to salvation. A couple applications here as we close. Grace doesn't leave any latitude for comparison to other people. It certainly doesn't leave us in a place to sneer in contempt with others or to have jealousy towards other believers. The main application, the main point of this parable as it was originally given certainly pertained to Jewish Christians the vineyard is the symbol of Israel throughout the Bible. That's, that's not accidental here in this parable. It, it, it pertained to the idea of a Jewish Christian who was seeing, who would see soon, many Gentiles coming in. They were the ninth and eleventh hour workers. And many Jewish believers, and you know what happened in the book of Acts. There was a lot of tension, a lot of frustration. You know, who are these people? How can they come into the blessing of God? Well, they were being told that the first hour covenant people of Israel were not in any way superior to those who came later. And that if God chose to be extravagant in his grace to the Gentiles, that was his right. Another application is certainly to tell believers who perhaps have been a long time in their service and their discipleship 
that longevity in the faith doesn't guarantee them spiritual maturity or any special privileges, really. That there are actually new babes in Christ who have recently come to faith, who are every way equal in what they've received from God. And, and something like, let's say, charter membership in a, in a church like this. You can be proud if you're a charter member of this church as it approaches its 40th birthday. That's a fine thing. But don't assume that it somehow gives you senior status in the kingdom of God. And how about those who have an in-depth understanding of the Word of God? You're a person maybe who can, who can debate about doctrine, and you understand the creeds of the church and different nuances of, of church history. And, and in the Sunday school class, you know, you make the learned comment that some people sit back and think, oh my goodness, I don't know everything that person knows. Well, it's a great thing that you have that knowledge. Go on and pursue it and, and seek it. But don't ever think that being learned in the things of God can be exercised as a club of pride over anyone else. In fact, humility is the authentic mark of those indwelt by Christ. A final application, I think, is this from Matthew 20. Maybe we need to think about this as American Christians who often suppose, you know, we really have sort of been God's favored people in the history of the world. Hasn't Christianity had a very unique root and growth in America, more so than just about any other country except maybe England throughout history? And look at England today, by the way, if you want to be humbled. But isn't America kind of a favored elite? You know, we send most of the missionaries. We pay most of the bills for the worldwide Christian enterprise. And it's very easy for Americans to think, we are God's people. Hmm. Maybe you better take a look at what's happening in the third world today. The epicenter of Christianity is moving south and east God is working in Africa today. Wake up and see what's happening there as new churches are being started by the scores every single day. And in many countries, especially in West Africa, revival fires are burning. True revival and true works of God as he brings many to himself among people who have just about nothing. And to humble us the most, I think, you've seen in recent days how African church leaders rise up in indignation when they look at the Word of God and what it teaches and look at the West and Western Christian so-called leaders who say, we can take this departure from the Scripture and go off here to the left. And their African brothers are saying, we can't have fellowship with that. God bless them. We need to thank God for them. At any moment we think we have suddenly deserved God's favor, we may be in danger of learning we never had it in the first place. The amazing Lord of grace will reward those who are faithful to the end in Christ. He will reward us best of all with eternal life. He will replace with blessings any material losses you might sacrifice for him. He will surprise you by exalting little people and spiritual latecomers into places of honor in his kingdom. Many who are first now will be last and vice versa. But those who are counted as first at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ will not be counted that way because they have an abundance of good works. They will be counted that way because they have a gracious, gracious Lord and Savior. 
Father, we ask today as we begin this year that you would humble us, remind us daily of the gift of your grace. We thank you for the knowledge that you will reward us, but may we serve you from a love that is not fixed on the things and the goodies and the trinkets, but on your wonderful face. For Jesus' sake, amen.